0: So I'm reading uh, James chapter one, verses 19 through 27. And when I was asked, I smiled because this is one of my favorite sections of verse passages. Also though, one of the most challenging. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he's deceiving himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world.
1: All right, well, James starts this passage, right, about anger. This is the thing that kind of sits with, especially some of us that have dealt with anger a lot. That sort of just bleeds through the whole thing. We don't hear the rest of it because, man, that is a hard command. That is a hard encouragement that James gives simply to be slow to anger. But I want to stop right there for a second. Say, This is not a passage that is just about anger. I'm going to come back to anger. Anger is symptomatic. Anger is a symptom of an identity that the person in this passage that James is talking to, a churchgoer in this passage, because James is speaking to the church, he's saying this is a symptom you have because of a misplaced identity. And he's drilling in on this identity on a particular point, and he's saying the fact that you get angry is because you lack self-control. So we have anger as a symptom of a lack of self-control that is rooted to a misplaced identity. So that gets us to where we need to begin, which is what James has been all about. We've been calling this series, A Handbook on Wholeness. And what the root of every sermon has been this idea of becoming like Christ. Christ-likeness as the goal of our identity as Christians. And he uses this central image in the middle of the text where he says, this person that gets angry, that lacks self-control, that has a misplaced identity, he is like a man who looks intently at his face in the mirror. ESV says, at his natural face in the mirror. Well, my, I'm a tangential thinker as some creative people are, and so I immediately just start free associating when I read a text. Sometimes I have to rein myself in and go, is that really what the text is about? But sometimes it's very fruitful. The very first thing that came to my mind as I was thinking about the mirror is those words that we all remember from the the fairy tale Snow White, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? We know that phrase, of the witch talking to the mirror. Day after day as she asks the mirror and she sees her own reflection, you are the fairest of them all. And the mirror is sworn to tell the truth until one day when the queen asks her mirror. And it's not the queen who shows up, but it is of course Snow White who is the fairest of them all. Snow White has come to age and she is now the most beautiful woman in the realm. What does this cause the queen to do? And now she's no longer seeing the reflection of herself, but of Snow White. She becomes angry. She becomes envious. She becomes even murderous. Now, why does that happen? It's because her ideal, the somebody that she wants to be, no longer shows up in the mirror as her reflection but it's somebody else. See, the, the the queen, when she looks in the mirror, she wants the most beautiful, she wants to be the most beautiful person. She wants to be the most beautiful, and to be somebody for her is to be the most beautiful. And then she sees in that mirror that it's not her. And that reveals that for this queen, there is actually a deep insecurity when she approaches the mirror. Now, isn't that relatable? That when we approach the mirror and we look at our own face staring back at us, we are dealing with all of our own insecurities. And what the mirror story reveals, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all, right in that phrase, it reveals the ideal that the queen is looking for in her life. She is on a search in her life every day to find contentment is to realize that ideal in herself. I will be content if I am somebody then I can rest in peace. The queen has complete peace so long as she is the most beautiful one. But when she isn't, her entire world unravels. She's wracked with anxiety. She's filled with fear. She's preoccupied with getting that back. She has to be somebody in order to be whole. Well, James shows us that we are prone to do horrific things, we're prone to act outside of what we know is right when we misplace that ideal, when we put it just out of reach, when we put it in the world's hands, when we decide that it's something that we have to grasp for and get and strive for. And that leads us in fear and in insecurity to things like anger and hatred. Every morning when you wake up and you look in that mirror, what are the things that come to your mind? What are the deepest yearnings? Perhaps you look in the mirror and suddenly you're, you're picking at part of your face. Suddenly you're realizing, okay, if I do my makeup this way, I'll, I'll look the way I, I saw somebody that looked this way and I want to look like that, right? Maybe you look and you go, oh gosh, really? or even grayer, right? You you look and you start to see your age and you say, something about that ideal, I'm reaching, I'm grabbing, I'm striving for, it's leaving me. Maybe for some, it's to look in that face in the mirror and to think to myself, I wanna be more beautiful. I wanna be more successful. I wanna be more appreciated. Maybe for others, it's I wanna be more connected, more intelligent. Maybe also it's kind of beating yourself up. I want to be less stressed. You look stressed out this morning. You look tired. You'd be a little less tired today. I want to be less preoccupied with myself. There is a striving for an ideal that we're after. And it's not always bad to have that striving. But we have to ask ourselves, what is the ideal in the mirror? When the queen looks in the mirror, she's not falling in love with herself like a Greek narcissist. She is actually insecure about herself. She's uncertain. Because she's not in love even with herself, she's in love with beauty and she has to have it. So when the mirror tells her she's beautiful, then she loves herself. The bottom line of this whole image that James is putting out, putting forth before us in this word picture. What somebody do you want to become? What's what's, to you? Who is the somebody that you want to be? When you say to yourself, I want to be somebody, who is that? Who have you put there? What is the ideal you've asked yourself to become? Because you are going to walk away from the mirror with that projection of the somebody that you want to look back at. And you're going to spend your day seeking to live up to that standard. But so much of the time, it's very subconscious. It's very muddled. We don't discover it actually until it's taken away. And we've talked about that. How when we get poked and pricked and when we find ourselves defensive and angry, it's because that ideal has been taken farther out of reach from us in some way. What somebody do you want to become? That's your ideal. James in his story says, there is a person who looks in the mirror. And he studies his natural face intently. He's intently studying. What is he studying? What is the natural face? Is this himself? Is he saying, who am I? Is he going on a journey of self-discovery? Is that what the text is saying? When I first read it, I thought, okay, there's a, James is giving us image of a, a hypocritical guy, right? a hypocritical person who is a hearer of the word and not a doer. And he's studying himself and then he's going out into the world. And I said, this doesn't quite add up with the rest of the text. What does it mean to study your natural face in the mirror? Well, later, if we look, it says, for he looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he was like, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and, per- and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he is blessed in his doing. What is this natural face? that we need to remember when we look in the mirror? What is the actual somebody that we need to see looking back at us in ourselves as our most natural foundational person? In the Greek, the word for the natural face is the geneseo, the genesis face. What is your genesis face? How are you created? What is the face that you were created to have looking back at yourself? What is your truest origin. Because James is setting up a, a churchgoer, a person who is actually doing the right thing. He's intently studying this natural representation of what God made him to be. What do we do? Carrie talked about this when we got up to pray. We are going to learn what it means today to be a Christian. This is what we all do when we go to church. what we come, we say, teach me how to be a Christian. We study our natural face in the mirror every Sunday if we don't do it other days of the week in our own personal devotions, in our own prayer, in our own reading the scriptures. That is studying our natural face. To read scripture, to have Christian conversations, to do devotions, to pray, is to look and see in the mirror the somebody that you want to be And this text says the somebody that you are, the somebody that is reflected back, the deepest, truest part of you is who? Jesus, the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus, right? The person looking back at you in the mirror when you get up in the morning, warts and all, ideals all out of whack, the person, the truest person looking back at you is Jesus, For every Christian, we've professed belief in Jesus. We've repented and believed. And the person looking back at us, sometimes we can't deal with it, is Christ himself. Every morning when you wake up, this is the ideal person. Just realize it's easier for me as a man to say that, seeing Jesus look back at me, than if a woman were to wake up and look in a mirror, seeing Jesus looking back at them. There's probably fruitful conversation to be had there. The character of Jesus. Let's put it that way. I don't have a bearded person looking back at me as a woman waking up and looking in the mirror. The character of Jesus is looking back. Through the reflection of myself, I see the accessible character of Jesus. Now, how do I get that from the text? The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. You have to mind that part of the text. What is the perfect law, the law of liberty? Matthew five seventeen tells us the answer when Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to abolish not to abolish them, but to fulfill them to make them perfect. The law becomes perfect in me. I am the perfect law, the person of Jesus. John eight thirty one. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We know that verse. The law of liberty, is the perfect law that is the truth that sets us free. Let's go back to James, verse 25. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, let's just sub in Jesus. The one who looks into the mirror, when they look at the mirror, and they're studying to, and sees Jesus looking back at them in themselves and perseveres, to live out of that image is not a hearer who doesn't do but is somebody who hears and does does somebody who hears and acts that's what this text is saying when i wake up in the morning the first the, the, the just the most main thing of james in his handbook for wholeness is that you've got to get this identity screwed in so tight in your life. So much so that when you bleary-eyed, you know, out of bed, hairs, you know, like you're getting, some of us don't even look before we take a shower. Let's just be honest. It's just like get past the mirror, right? Like I can't even look at myself. That when you look at that face, you're going, Jesus is in there. Jesus is in there. Like. Jesus is in there. I gotta just deal with that for a second, right? Doesn't matter what happened last night, doesn't matter what I've already done this morning, doesn't matter the thoughts I've thought, the sins I've had, Jesus is in there. Why? Well, because I invited him in. Some point in my life, the churchgoer in this text invited Jesus to be in there, to be the reflection that they look back at, at the morning, in the morning. And so that is the most natural face. It's the most natural face of all people, Christian or not. It is the Genesis face. And it's not the face of Adam. It's not the face that I see that is my ideal. My pursuit in my life to find wholeness, and this is where Christianity disagrees with the culture completely, is not to become the true self that I see in the mirror. And to discover what that truest self of me and all my crannies and, and scars and all of my, all of that. And to discover who does this person need to be. That's a wild goose chase. It is to look in the mirror and see an ideal of a somebody that is completely anchored in and true. There's no, there's no investigation of who that somebody is. It's given to us. It's Jesus. And that will make me whole. And here's the craziest thing. If that is my natural face in the mirror, if that is my Genesis face, if that is the deepest, truest part of me, then it can't be taken away from you. So that means if my ideal is Christ and I look into the mirror, it is not mirror, mirror on the wall who is the fairest of them all and I have to strive and try and be the most beautiful thing just to be somebody. I wake up and I am instantly and always Something. I have complete peace that no matter who I see in that mirror this morning, no matter how they look, no matter what I think I want, Jesus himself has said, you are somebody. You're already somebody because I've made you somebody. Because I've taken the Adam, the most natural human, and I have fulfilled him and I have forgiven you and the world can't take that away from you. Bad hair and all, crooked teeth and all, bad breath, everything, job history, disabilities, all of it. Isn't it utterly freeing and amazing to believe that we can always be like Christ anytime, anyone, anywhere. This is the beauty of the gospel message. When Jesus comes, right? The Jews have taken this and said, ah, it's only for us. And Jesus says, I'm busting this wide open. This is for literally everybody. And it's accessible to everybody at any time of the day. After any sin that has been committed, this is still in reach. Doesn't matter if you're a prostitute. Doesn't matter if you're a tax collector. Doesn't matter if you're a Pharisee. Doesn't matter if you're nobody. The gospel is available to you. Now, what happens to us when we hear that? It's a beautiful thing. It's an absolutely beautiful thing to hear. Do we receive it with humility, as Jason read? Are we humbly taught the implanted word, the gospel of truth, which is able to save our souls? Or does it bounce off of us? That's what James is dealing with here. He says, look, the problem with all of you churchgoers is that you study it all the time, and then you forget. You study it, and then you say, hmm, ah, this is somebody. Uh, I woke up, and I did my devotions, and I realized, yeah, to be Jesus is to be somebody that's accessible to me, but look at what they're doing Look how amazing their life is. Look at the house they have. Look at the job they have. Look at, look at, look at, and we forget. Or we say, if we're not prone to envy and we're prone to maybe just ambition. We say, but Jesus, I've got so much to do, right? And the only way I'm going to get it done is if I bend the rules a little bit. The only way I'm going to get it done is if I forget that acting like you is the best thing. And so we forget, we walk away from that mirror in the morning, even if we've studied it intensely, and we are hearers who do not do. That's the picture he's painting. Oscar Wilde wrote a story called The Picture of Dorian Gray. Some of you might be familiar with this story. It's it's kind of a mirror story in a way. I'll just give you the summary, okay? The summary of the picture of Dorian Gray is this. Mr. Gray had a beautiful portrait painted of himself at his young age, handsome, amazing portrait. And he was in love with his own beauty, just like the queen. But Dorian realizes that he is aging and his beauty is fading. He will not always be on top. So in the story... He ends up selling his soul so that he can be beautiful forever, and it will be the picture that ages, right? So he hides this picture up away where nobody can see it. And he stays young and immortally sort of beautiful and handsome and lives an immoral life does whatever he wants because he will always be young and handsome, it doesn't matter. But what happens is as he sins and acts and hedonism and doing whatever he wants, whatever social thing he wants to have, he gets. As he becomes more mean and more selfish, he goes up daily to check that picture and it's aging more and more and more. This goes on for 18 years. And then Dorian Gray decides he actually wants to stop doing bad things. He realizes this picture is fading and that there's some part of him that is splitting apart. That in striving to get everything he wants, he can't help but realize it is destroying part of him. And so he says, I'll do better. I'll be better. But it only makes it worse. He even tries a full confession because he wants to have it all. But he doesn't actually feel guilty, so it doesn't work. Finally, in rage, he picks up a knife and destroys the portrait. And his servant hears a scream from the room. They call the police, and the police find Dorian's body on the floor with a stab wound in his heart. There he lied dead, his body aged beyond recognition. Recognition and the picture, beautiful, just as he was when he was a young man. The self-destructive moral of this story is that when we desire an ideal that is impossible, when we desire an ideal that is impossible, we will slowly destroy ourselves to get it, right? This is the mission the world would have you on, is to go after an ideal that cannot be achieved to your standard and slowly eat you up in the process. Whether it's to be the ultimate influencer, whether it's to be the best CEO, whether it's to be like the celebrities you look up to, whether it's to be the best author, whether it's to be the most loving mother in the world with the most amazing house and the the picture perfect like you see in Martha Stewart living like if that's if that's what your ideal is you will kill yourself to get it And it won't help other people. It will be in service of you reaching that ideal saying, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest of them all? The days that you compare yourself and you've got it, you'll feel great. The days that you compare yourself and you don't, you'll feel horrible. And the only redemptive solution is the ideal of Jesus. But it's not an ideal that's out of reach. That's the big thing. That's the big thing as Christians that we need to get. It is possible at all times in all places to all people to act like Jesus. That's the the foundation of this text. It doesn't matter what the world throws at you. You can still act like Jesus. The deaths that we feel when the world throws things at ourselves and we act like Jesus and we feel pain, those deaths, or what I call them, those painful feelings you have, are your sanctification. And it's really hard. What they are is your ideals being stripped away as you make the Jesus choice and the other thing has to pass by. I choose, because I know it's right to act like Jesus right now, to be the picture I see in the morning. And because of that, I will lose this job opportunity because it doesn't fit the values of the kingdom. I choose to act like Jesus, and because of that, I will take a pay cut. I choose to act like Jesus, and because of that, my kids will not get into the school that my friend's kids are in. I choose to act like Jesus, and because of that, I will follow perhaps my spouse to something that isn't fulfilling my dream of becoming somebody. Whatever it is, there are things that we do, sacrifices that we make to do the Jesus thing, and there is a cost. But this text tells us, hold on, there is blessing. Hold on. There is blessing. Do, don't be doers of the word. Do, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because if you don't, you'll be deceiving yourself. To go after all of those other things at the end of your life, you will have lived a lie, which is what Dorian Gray sees when he sees the picture. Only he knows the lie that he's living every time he looks at that portrait and it slowly kills him, right? Because he knows his own hypocrisy. He is faced and has to deal with his own shame of not being the person he's projecting deep in his core. And we all, this is like the, this is the problem of existing as a human being. This is what we call our existential angst, right? Is that we cannot help but not reach the person that we want to be. We can never fully get it. And this is where Jesus enters in with the gospel and he says, the only solution to your most foundational problem, your deepest hypocrisy, is the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. And it is the only thing that will keep you so that when the moment of truth comes, you won't duck. Right? So if, if I'm in love with any other ideal, then there will be a moment where I need to act like Jesus and I won't. I'll duck. Because I'm actually more secure with another ideal, whether it's, whether it's my stature in the community, whatever those things are, whether it's uh, my own independence, whether it's my legacy. Whatever it is, I will duck when I'm supposed to act like Jesus. Because I'm not rooted in his truest identity, and I don't believe that it will actually do for me what he says it will do for me. And that is to lie to ourselves. On some level, we've convinced ourselves that to be Christ like is either not possible, not practical, or not good. It's either not possible, like, I I literally can't. That would cost too much, right? Uh, That would be socially idiotic. People would look at me and be like, you're crazy. I can't. It's impossible. Or it's impractical, right? Or it's not good. If I did that, something deep inside me says it would be really damaging. And so I can't act like Jesus, Peter, in Acts 2, when he stands out after Pentecost and preaches the very first sermon, what does he say? He says, repent and believe in Jesus. Repent and believe in Jesus. And then when Jesus says, abide in me, what does he mean? He means the exact same thing. To be Christ-like requires that we repent and believe in Jesus. What is repenting? It's turning from all of the other ideas of what somebody is and believing, hoping in the identity of Jesus as being the best possible thing for your life. So another way you could say repent is to receive. That's what is used in James. Receive with humility, the implanted word, that requires repentance. If I'm going to receive with humility the message of Jesus in my life and all of the trappings that come with that, all the behavioral codes, all of the ways that I need to act, if I'm gonna receive all of that, I have to do it with humility because it's gonna strip things away from me. It's gonna change me. I'm gonna become a different person with what James calls the implanted word, the gospel of truth. And then I need to believe in Jesus Christ. And James, throughout this whole book, has been talking about this sort of like schizophrenia, the spiritual schizophrenia that we get. When we say we're going to do it, but then we don't do it, right? We duck. We say we're going to live in faith and trust, but then we fall apart in private. We say that we're going to be stable and an anchor for people, but then we're all over the place, Right? He says that schizophrenia of your soul is not just damaging to you, it's damaging to the whole church and the whole world. And it deceives yourself. Because now you think the way of Jesus is that, is this turmoil, is is living in this like chaos. And that's not it. The way of Jesus is to be anchored in and to believe And to believe in 1 John, John writes this, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, is to think this. This is what you think every morning. This is what we ought to think when we look in the mirror, no matter what we see looking back at us in the morning. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Okay, I don't know about you. You get up, you're like there, you're looking. Do you say to yourself, behold, behold, Jason, behold, Riley, behold, Arthur, behold, self, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on me. I am a child of God. What a way to start your morning, by the way. What a beautiful way to start your morning. Hey, 50-year-old face, 60-year-old face, 37-year-old face, hey, you are are a child of God. Hey, person that is ashamed that they just acted out of anger again. Person that is ashamed that they are still full of self-loathing. Person that is ashamed that they have gained 10 pounds. You are bestowed the love of the Father and you are a child of God. You are forgiven for everything in the past, and it is not your weight, it is not your hair, it is not any of that stuff that makes you worthy. You're worthy already. You have the DNA of Christ implanted in you. And that when you look at that person in the mirror, the dice could not be rolled in such a way in life The world could not do anything to you in your day today or yesterday or any time in your life that would remove the love of the Father and that would remove the possibility of being like Christ today from us. Wow. Well, wait a minute, that's complete openness to the kingdom. Nothing that has happened to me and nothing that will happen to me can remove me from being a child of God, from having the Genesis face of Christ in myself as my most natural self. It's not out of reach. It hasn't been taken from me, and I can live it now, this moment. And let me tell you, After you've been thrown your life out of whack and your family off kilter from anger, as we talked about at the beginning, you need that. Because you will act out of the depravity of whatever state you see yourself in, and you will dig the hole deeper for yourself. So, as an example, you spiral out in anger. Now, what's the first thing that happens? Anybody that's angry can identify, don't raise your hand, can identify with me in this As soon as you act out of anger, especially as a Christian, and you are convicted that it's wrong, you feel an emotion that is so loud and so big it controls everything you do. And that is shame. You feel ashamed. And then you act out of a place of lack, out of shame, out of discontentment, out of guilt, right? And that takes you and spirals you to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. The only way to get out of it is to actually so counterintuitively say, I am beloved, bestowed with the love of the Father. I am a child of God. Now, how do I act like Jesus? Not how do I get, not how do I use that as arrogance? Oh, I'm, I'm so loved, I nothing wrong with happen. No, I'm bestowed with the love of God. Now, how do I act like Jesus right this second? Now, it may be a much longer road because when you make sinful mistakes like that, You can do so much damage that it seems to set you back miles. But the only way to continue down that path again is to act like Jesus. It's literally the only thing that will work. That is true hope. Hope that's accessible every morning, every day. And that is only there because of the gospel of grace, Jesus. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, some of you may know just hearing that text, other of you will know this once you hear it, is the very famous passage in the Old Testament about the new covenant. If the implanted word is in our hearts and we receive it with meekness and it is able to save our souls... And if, as hearers of that, we can be doers of it at any point of the day, because it is the most natural part of us, then that means means that Christ indwells in us, right? That's when we talk about the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit indwelling in us. If something's inside of you, it's accessible to you at all times, right? This is the new covenant. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now now that know the Lord phrase in English, I think it's just really inaccessible to us what that actually means. It's talking about intimacy. That's talking about connectivity, right? They don't need to abide by certain laws to get into God's good graces. They begin in his good graces because they're family, because he has forgiven their sins and he remembers them no more. But James says there is action to that, right? Do not be hearers only and not doers. So to accept, to repent and believe, to accept, to receive means that we actually need to hope. Christians are people with an unshakable promise of hope, which means when we wake up in the morning and we say that mantra to ourselves, I am bestowed with the love of Father, I am a child of God, that should instill deep hope in us. Deep hope that the kingdom is open, that we hear the voice of God looking in the mirror no matter where we've come from, that Jesus heard at his baptism when the dove alit on him, behold my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. Can you receive that? Can you receive that that is actually true of the deepest part of you? Because if we trust that and we act, we will then act out of it. We won't act out of the depravity. We won't act out of the shame and take ourselves further down the spiral. We will actually act out of a place of wholeness. No longer going to people to extract from them what we need. No longer going to get a transaction and a payback. No longer yearning for fulfillment that is yet to come because we have it right now. And that's... You guys, that is, that's it. To live like that changes everything. But it is so hard because every day you're going to wake up realizing you thought that was the case. You even said the words in the mirror. I dare you, tomorrow, go and say, in fact, it'd be a great habit. Go say these words when you look at yourself in the mirror. And then find out what idols, what ideals you're in love with. And watch as those have to be taken away from you. And don't let them be taken away in misery, but in hope. See, that's that's the counterintuitive self-control that James is talking about. That is so counterintuitive that I would be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger means that I would let some things just be taken away from me. I hear you, I hear you. I so badly wanna fight for myself right now. But I'm just going to hear you. Do some reflective listening exercises. I'm going to say, okay, you just said this to me and I heard you say that. Is that what you said? Okay, great. Okay, I'm going to be slow to speak. I'm going to be slow to anger. If I'm truly not going to live to get that thing back and I'm actually going to act like Jesus, it means that some things are going to be lost to me. So I have to have an unshakable promise of hope that there is no ideal that I have to go after to get, that it's actually mine to begin with. And it is the Holy Spirit dwelling in me who fulfills me completely and utterly and who saves my soul. Two weeks ago in James, we looked at verse 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. By acting as we hear, by acting out of the implanted word in us, the gospel, by acting as gospel people, the reflection in the mirror becomes easier to see as Jesus over time. And other people will see it too. I've heard a friend told me, he goes, there was this woman in this care home for for, um, youth, disadvantaged youth, because you would never think it. She's just this older redheaded woman and she was like Jesus Christ himself, right? He saw in her, now maybe she didn't see it in the movie, but he saw in her a person who had made the choice over and over again, whose society would say was nobody, who doesn't have a big write-up and a, probably an obituary of her legacy, who isn't acclaimed and in the columns in the New York Times, who is Christ-like who lived an ideal that was accessible to her every day and looked and began to exist in the image of Jesus Christ. Okay, so what do we do with that? Where do we go? This text should give us, first of all, we've talked about this already quite a bit, hope to persevere, okay? If it's accessible every morning, anytime to anybody, that Jesus loves me and that I have what I need in this moment right now, spiritually, that I have enough, then I have the hope I need at every given moment to keep going. Every given moment. Okay. Can we do that? Can we wake up and have that hope to persevere, so that we don't despair that what we desire is slowly passing through our grip, like Snow White or Dorian Gray, and also so that we don't despair, and a lot of times we do this as Christians, that Jesus is more beautiful than we could ever hope to become. So sometimes we look at that mirror and we go, not this guy, right? You don't know what I did last night. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I thought in my heart. You don't know what I've looked at. You don't know me, Jesus. I could never become like you. And what does that create in us? A heart of despair. But no, the word of truth gives in us a heart of hope. And the fact that the natural face looking back at us is Jesus counteracts that lie that we've told ourselves, that we can never become like Jesus. We were joking in cohort the other day that, um, you know, maybe the Christian life of sanctification is like, I'm 98, I'm 99, I'm 100% sinful. And like, as my life goes, I get to like 97% when I die, right? Like, maybe that's sanctification. I, mean, I kind of laughed, right? It's okay, well, that kind of frames it a little better. But I think there's something a little bit self-defeating about that. There's something that kind of lowers my expectations. There's something that lets me off the hook about that, too. No. Jesus says, Jesus is looking back at you in the mirror, and it's possible. It's possible. Christ-likeness is not an ideal, a dream, uh, something that we just beat ourselves up with. It's actually possible to look like Jesus. That's why he came in the flesh, to live it out, is to show us what was actually possible. But we say, after we screw up, we say, why try? And we deceive ourselves that we are out of control because as soon as we say, why try, we start to give up. So we have to believe that it is possible to become like Jesus. All right, the second thing it tells us, the second thing we can do with this text is that we can actually practice an exceedingly high level of self-control. We can practice an exceedingly high level of self-control. This is what James is talking about in the beginning where he says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And it requires self-control. We get angry, Primarily out of what? Out of insecurity. We get angry because we don't have what we want. We feel like what we have is being taken away from us. Anger comes from a place of insecurity. And so it is practicing self-control and realizing that what seems is not what is. We've talked about letting the truth interpret your facts, right? The truth of God has to interpret the facts of your life. Things may seem like they're spiraling out of control, but I know God loves me. I know that I need to continue acting like Jesus. The solution to this problem is not to abort mission and start acting like John. The solution to this mission is to keep acting like Jesus. Now, there may be different ways I can do that. The strategic person goes, how can I act like Jesus in the way? Right? But you're never going to stop the process. You always have to practice self-control, and it is possible. It is never impossible to be in control of yourself. So often we say things after we screw up that excuse our behavior. And we are basically saying, it was impossible for me to be in control because of what you did or because of what just happened. We have to start with ourselves. Now I like to, you guys know I like to play this game um, that is like finding the gospel and everything. So another free association. The Michael Jackson song, Man in the Mirror, came to mind, right? I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways and no message could have ever been any clearer. They want to make the world a better place. Take a look at yourself and make a change. We all know that song, right? That's so close. I mean, it's really close. There's a lot of good. There's a lot of good gospel behavioral message in there, but 99% of gospel is 0% gospel. If it's not 100, it's not gospel. When you look at yourself, unless you see Christ, you're going to run out of fuel. And that's the difference. So to exercise self-control means that I actually need to see the love of Christ and the image of Christ as possible in my day. Third thing. It will lead to a visible and admirable religious integrity. A visible, an admirable integrity. This is the last part. Verse 26, if anybody thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Okay, That's not admirable to anybody else. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Isaiah, when he talks to Israel, he announces that God will no longer recognize the worship his people offers them. They must wash themselves, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Now, the orphan and the widow, Riley and I were just talking about this morning, are not like things that we're concerned about nearly so much as in that time. We don't think of how do I care for the orphan and the widow today. This is anybody who finds themselves helpless in the world. This is anybody in the margins, disadvantaged, without the access that we have. Are you caring for those people? In the Old Testament, this was called Abrahamic righteousness. When God asked Abraham that he says, you are righteous by your faith, his faith was not simply believing for himself that he was saved, it was a whole operating system for his life. It was a whole behavioral way of being. And part of that was his approach to what is called the worthless to me person. Who is the worthless to me person and how do you act towards him? Do you act like Jesus to somebody who has no worth or value, no consequence to your life, doesn't give you anything, doesn't help you get anywhere? James says that's the measurement of your religion. Nobody sees it. It's completely secret. You don't even talk about it later. I mean, how many times have I helped somebody, I gave money to somebody, and then I come home and I tell somebody about it, right? And like, part of that is like, okay, maybe I'm encouraging other people to give, but maybe there's like a little seed there that's like, I did a good thing today. Like, I made that work out for me. I made that boost me a little bit. That's why sometimes... You know, somebody might challenge you to say, do good things and don't ever tell a soul, right? It's a good religious practice. That's why in, throughout the Bible, people pray in secret, right? Jesus says, do without your other hand, even know, knowing what you're doing. Have that integrity. And number four, it will bring happiness and blessing. It will bring happiness and blessing. Now, this is the part. Some of you have all of the rest of it. You're self-controlled. You are frankly miserable, but you have told yourself that you're hopeful that one day Jesus will come back. You do good things for society, but you actually don't believe. I actually don't believe deep in Michael that it will bring true happiness, which is what blessing is. But James disagrees. He says, the one who looks into the perfect law, who sees Jesus looking back at him in the mirror and perseveres out of that every day, day after day, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That is a word. Like that is a word for your day. I can't see it. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know where my life's heading. Everything feels like it's gone off the tra- trails At some point, when I became a Christian and actually started living like it, and now I'm in the wild west of my life, and I don't know how this is blessing me. If you don't get that piece locked into, actually, the whole thing unravels because now you're a miserable Christian, and there is no such thing as a miserable Christian. I've been told. But that's really hard to act out of. And there's another part of the blessing. The blessing isn't just happiness like my life feels good, everything's fine, happiness. That happiness biblically is about an increase in understanding. And I'll wrap up here. I just want to get through this. John Calvin wrote that obedience is the mother of the true knowledge of God. So to be blessed is actually to come into an understanding of what goodness is, by living out the Jesus way in life and reframing, to some extent, happiness. So culture is gonna give you an image of happiness that is predominantly based on selfishness. And Jesus is gonna give you an image of happiness that you must discover by living his way. And when you discover it, you will be blessed. Jesus says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That is the huge challenge. That the amazing grace of Jesus draws us to radical obedience, okay? And then a lot of us get off the track at the radical obedience. We take off, get off to a pit stop, and we just don't get back on. Or we get back on and we take the next one and we get back off. It's a bumpy ride. But the amazing grace of Jesus draws us to radical obedience back into amazing grace, And it's an endless circle of peace that is full of self-control, is slow to anger, is treating well the worthless person. And it will reverberate across the city. It will reverberate just in your own church to act like this to one another, to act with the confident hope that Jesus has us. When you stand up front here, I guarantee you, because it's done it to me, will witness to the people sitting in these pews that aren't feeling particularly hopeful today. And it will reverberate out into the city when you go into your job and your communities and you have the love of Christ in your eyes and the unshakable hope of what is possible when the world starts to act like Jesus and you're acting out of that future hope in the present, making it happen, it will change your environment. And people will then ask, and I believe this is true, how is it possible that believing in Jesus could change the world so much? That's our witness, let's pray. God, Father, each person in this room needs your love, needs to to hear it spoken over them. I love you like a son. I love you like a daughter. You are a son. You are a daughter. And when I look at you, I see the face of my son, Jesus himself. Now go and live that truth. Amen.